So, as Ben mentioned earlier on, uh, this is the last in our series on overcoming obstacles. We've been thinking about what barriers get in the way of a relationship with God, closeness to God. So we've been thinking about guilt and shame. We thought about fear and anxiety. Um, Last week we thought about uh, comparisons, playing the comparison game. And this week we're thinking about doubt and how doubt can be an obstacle to our relationship with God, to closeness with God, um, and how to, to deal with that, how to respond to that. Now, doubt's something I think that doesn't get talked about very much. It's kind of a, a hidden thing. People don't like to say, I, I, I'm not even sure God's there. It's something that probably most of us struggle with at some level. We have questions, but it doesn't get really talked about. It's basically doubt is having questions for God or questions about God. I think there are two main types of, of questions that we have. There's the classic uh, intellectual questions uh, questions that are things like, um, can I really believe the Bible's true? Um, if God's real, why doesn't he make himself clearer? Um, is, he, is he really there at all? Those kind of intellectual questions. And then there's a whole other set of questions that I call uh, emotional questions that, that we have as well a lot of the time. How could you allow that to happen if you're really there and you really love me? How could you have allowed that person to get cancer? How could you have allowed that baby to be um, abused? Whatever awful tragedy it is, insert into the space. If you really love people, why don't we see more fruit? Why don't we see more people coming to know Jesus? If the Holy Spirit really, really lives in Christians, how can they be so cruel and unkind? How can God really love me after what I've done? How can God really love me after what's been done to me? All these kind of questions, I would say, that categorize those in terms of emotional and doubt. And, and those are just as real and perhaps even more deep a lot of the time. Um, my own experience of doubt, I think, covers both types. So um, while I was at university, I was a student. I um, was very involved in the Christian Union at university. Um, particularly my second and third years, spent a lot of time, actually, of my week uh, studying the Bible, helping other people to study it, meeting with other Christians, singing about Jesus. It was wonderfully encouraging. Um, in, this, in the summer term, I, I finished uh, being involved in the committee, the CU committee that I was involved in, and realized I had to study for some exams, so got my head down. Um, spent most of my time that, that term revising, studying with my course mates. Spent a lot less time with my Christian friends, doing Christian things, if you like, reading the Bible, um, singing. And uh, I, I used to do a thing where I'd go to the snooker hall near the revision place where we, where we revise in the library with a, a friend of mine from my course. And we play snooker after a long day of revision just to unwind. It's good fun. And, uh, we, and we'd chat. And he was a, an atheist. And he had a lot of questions. And, uh, and it got me thinking. And we thinking, is this all real? I've, just, I've given two years of my life to, to this. I haven't seen loads happen. Is it really all, all true? So I had a lot of, a lot of processing to do in those, in those weeks and months. My second, I think, experience of doubt, I would say is a more emotional kind of question. And that would have been in the period between our, our first and second daughters when we had four miscarriages. And in those months, in those, in those years, so many prayers prayed to God, so many requests on our knees, saying, Lord, we know you can do it. 
we know you can give us a healthy child. Um, please, would you? And the answer, often, for many months, uh, was, was no. And that results in questions. Well, we know you can do it, God, but so why don't you? Why not? So both types of questions, the intellectual type and the emotional type, are very real. And if you've been there, and if you've got those kind of questions this, morning, this afternoon, um, you'll know that it's hard. It's hard. And the Bible talks about doubt. It uses an image to describe the doubting person uh, in the book of James as being like a wave that's tossed on the, on the sea, driven here and there by the wind. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat, a small boat even, uh, when it's, it's very windy and wavy and stormy, and you've been tossed about and the boat's been uh, rocking to and fro. It's not a fun experience. I've only had it once or twice. I would not uh, want to have it many times again. It's very unsettling. And the Bible says having questions and doubts about God is like that. It's very unsettling. It can take away our confidence. It can take away our security, our peace, our joy. Um, and it can lead to people walking away. And maybe you're there this afternoon and you haven't told anyone because it's not the kind of thing you talk about, but you've got questions. And you're thinking, well, what, what about this, God? If you're there, well, what about this? And what, what, how do you explain uh, the way the world is and the way my, my life is? Maybe you're identifying. If, you, if you're there at the moment, if you've been there in the past, you'll know doubt is hard. Now, the Bible is honest about doubt. It's honest about people that come to God with questions. It's full of examples of people who question God. And I love that about the Bible. I love that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat life. The Bible tells it like it is. The Bible says, yeah, life is hard, and people do have questions. And it's actually so helpful to do what we're doing this afternoon and to study those parts of the Bible, to think about doubt, because it allows us to identify with other people, great saints of the past who have struggled with the same things, and because it shows us a pathway through those questions. So today we're going to look at a psalm, um, Psalm 44, that was read earlier by Ben. And it's a psalm where the author is very honest about his struggles with God and about his own questions. But it's also a psalm that gives us some guidance on how we can respond and how we can deal with those questions when they arise in our own hearts. So if you've got a Bible open, do have a, a look at that um, psalm. Um, if, if you haven't got a Bible, there's some on the table so you can, you can grab. We're going to just look at an overview of the psalm first of all. Just walk through it and show sort of what, what he's saying. And then we'll look at uh, three lessons from the psalm on dealing with doubt. So the psalm was probably written uh, during the time of the kings of Israel. The time when Israel was living in the land. So it's the time when there were, there were lots of other countries surrounding Israel, lots of other nations. They were constantly having battles. And it's the time in Israel's history where they were uh, under a covenant with God. They've made an, uh, an arrangement, if you like, with God. Uh, God had given them lots of laws to keep. He'd say, he says, I want you to keep these laws and live this way. And if you do, then I'll bless you and I want to bless you. And if you don't keep these laws, then I'll curse you. Okay, so that's the context, that's where we are. Um, and those blessings for obedience included military victory. They included winning battles and sending enemies away and putting them to flight and all this sort of thing. And the curses involved defeats, military defeats. So Israel are in the land. They're constantly involved in battles with the nations. 
And this psalm, we think, is written just after one of those battles. We don't know who with, with one of their neighbors. And this battle has gone very badly. This is a problem for Israel because it mattered if you won your battles or lost them. It made a great difference to your national security. So they've lost the battle and it's been pretty devastating. They've had men taken off as prisoner, go to other countries. They've had cities laid waste, ruined, destroyed. And the, the sons of Korah, who are temple musicians, hear the report of this battle. They take up their pen and parchment, whatever they had, and they write this psalm. And the psalm is kind of divided into three main sections. The first section, verses 1 to 8, um, the, the, the psalmist starts by reminding God of his help in the past. Maybe as if to make it worse at what's just happened. He says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. He's referring to uh, the time after the Israelites came out of Egypt and went into the land for the first time. The conquest, where God did win amazing victories for them. He fought on their behalf, gave them the land, and it was wonderful. And it showed them his love for them. Verse 3, by, by your right hand and your, and your arm you did this, for you delighted in them. It was wonderful. The psalmist looks back to a time of great joy and, and victory. And then in verse 4, he brings it into the present. He says, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. He says, it's true in the past. We've heard it from our fathers. That's definitely something we've heard. And we've experienced it ourselves. So we know you helped us in that battle last year, two, three years ago. That amazing victory we won. You helped us. We've seen this happen. You've saved us in the past. Your right arm has worked salvation for us. And that makes the second section... In verses 9 through to 22, all the more painful. Starts with a, a big word, but, in verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And the next five verses, he repeats that phrase, you have, six times. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back. From the foe, and those who hate us have taken spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. You have, you have, you have. You get the point. The psalmist is saying, God, we trusted you, and you haven't come through for us. You're responsible for what's happened. We trusted you to go out with us, to go out with our armies and win this battle for us, and you, and you didn't do it. And we've become a laughingstock. The result is shame and disgrace on God's people. And the psalmist is saying, essentially it's happened because of you. It's happened because of you, God. And the real twist of the knife is in verses 17 through to 22 of the psalm. The real twist of the knife is this, that it happened despite the fact that they are keeping the covenant. Did you hear that? Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. So they've been true to the covenant. In their actions, their steps have not departed from your way, and in their hearts, inwardly as well, their hearts haven't turned away. That's what God wanted. 
So why has this happened? Why have they still been defeated? And it, it seems in these verses they're being honest. It seems that um, they really were keeping the covenant. In verse uh, 20, they appeal to God's knowledge of their inner being. They say, uh, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not you discover this? For you, he, he knows the secrets of the heart. They're saying, you know, if we had been false, you'd know about it. And we haven't. You can, you can examine us. We've been true to you, and yet this has happened. And as a result, in the third and final section, the last four verses, the psalmist has got some pretty serious questions for God. Awake, he says, verse 23. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Why has this happened? Where were you? We went out and you didn't back us up. You abandoned us. It's not what you promised. He's got deep questions for God because he's got expectations. His expectations were God's faithfulness in the past to their fathers and their faithfulness in the present to the covenant equals victory. And that didn't happen. So he says, what's going on? And then the psalm ends. The end. No resolution. No answers, nothing like you get in in most of the other psalms where this happens and the psalmist has got questions. He then goes on and says, but I will trust you, but I will rejoice, but I will find rest in your steadfast love. And there's none of that. There's no answers. There's no nice bow tied on the psalm. So what's going on? Well, as I said, the Bible is honest about the realities of life. And sometimes there are no easy answers. There just aren't. The reality is that, like the psalmist, we all have expectations of God. We all have expectations that if, if he's really there, and if he's really like he, he says he is, then this will happen. Or this won't happen. And we have certain, certain things we expect will happen um, of God. And often those expectations aren't met. Often what we think should happen, doesn't happen. The person we think should be saved, isn't saved. The person we think should be healed, isn't healed. The person we think should have something bad to them, doesn't. Life doesn't work out as we think it should, if God was really there, if he was really powerful, and if he was really loving. And that leaves us with questions. And just like in this psalm, there are often no easy answers to those questions. You often can't tie a bow on things and just say, but I'll trust you and it'll be okay. And it it kind of feels like those expectations that we have are valid, like, like in the psalm. It kind of felt like it was a valid question. God, you should have gone out with the armies. They had trusted you. So what's, what's happening? So no easy answers. But there are lessons we can learn. And this psalm gives us a great uh, insight into someone who is struggling. And it gives us a great insight about how to respond to doubt. And these are lessons that I think we need to learn this afternoon. So three lessons then we can learn from this psalm. Number one, prioritize community. You might think, what? Where's he getting that from? Well, it's easy to miss that this is a psalm. And I was grateful to Ben that he read those little uh, words before verse one, because those are in the original text, those are inspired. 
It says, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. So a masculine is a musical term. And the sons of Korah were temple musicians. The psalm was addressed to the choir master. It was meant to be sung. So you can imagine the sons of Korah writing this psalm, going to the temple, gathering their brothers round, probably weeping, and singing it out together. And this psalm would then have been sung over the centuries by faithful Israelites in all different kind of contexts. When they experienced this kind of suffering, they'd have sung it together in community. And that's actually really important. It's really important that we share the journey with others. So doubt is a spiritual thing. We have an enemy, and the enemy loves to isolate us. It's far easier to, to bring someone down when they're away from the pack. Always hunt an individual, never hunt the group. He loves to draw people away. So whatever you do, if you're struggling with doubts, don't withdraw. Pursue community. Keep meeting together. Just physical presence, just being with people, even if you don't participate, even if you're not singing, even if you don't pray, even if your mind is somewhere else, just being here, being with people is so important. Uh, I had a, a really close friend um, who um, he moved to a new city after university. And at uni, he was really going for it. He was, he was loving Jesus, really involved with things. Uh, moved away. Didn't really settle into a church quickly and uh, got quite close with a group of, of non-Christian uh, friends. And he moved into a period of six, eight months of really serious doubts. Everything up in the air. It could all be made up. It was all on the line. We had long conversations in those months. And, uh, and I thought he was gone. I thought, he's, he's, um, he's left Jesus. He's not going to be a Christian. This is it. Um, it was only when he got settled in another church, and when he was surrounded by a supportive community, when he started meeting with Christians regularly, even though what, when he made that move, he probably wouldn't have called himself a Christian, it was only at that point, when he started to pray again, when he started to hear the Bible being preached and started to sing, that God started to, to bring him back. It's so important that we prioritize community. Number two, rehearse what you know to be true. Rehearse what you know to be true. That's what the psalmist does in the first eight verses. Interesting, isn't it? Just had the battle. He goes straight back to, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. It goes back to what he knows. And maybe there's something in your life that you just know to be true. You just know it. Something God did in your own life. Something God did in the lives of someone else that's close to you. Turned your life around. Turned their lives around. A healing. Something that's happened that you just know that was God. Hold on to it. And go back to that. Maybe something... That, that God did in history, that you just go back to and you think, I just know that was God. It can't have been anything else. The ultimate example would be the resurrection. Go back to a point in time that you know God was at work. Go back to something that, 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 that convinces you of the, the truth of the Bible, the consistency of the Bible, the fact that it has one storyline, the fact that there are so many fulfilled prophecies in the word of God. The place that I often go is just the fact that the Christian story makes so much sense of the world that we see. The Christian story of the God who is three and one. 
the Christian story of humans who are made in the relational image of that relational God. It makes so much sense of what we see of life. And then the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Actually, God's primary means of assurance for us. The Holy Spirit just testifying with our heart, yeah, you're a child of God, you're a child of God. You can call him daddy. Turn to that. Turn to what you know to be true. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book called uh, The Silver Chair. It's a great book. It's, in the, it's number six in the Narnia series. If you've never read this series, um, give it a read. It's, it's great. Um, in, this, in this book, two uh, children called Eustace and Jill are sent to Narnia, and the plot revolves around this prince called Prince Rillian, who's, who's hidden underground. He's been taken captive by a wicked uh, witch. And she's, she's hidden him deep underground, and she's enchanted him with a spell. And this spell means that uh, Prince Rillian doesn't believe the overworld, as C.S. Lewis calls it, exists. The underworld is all there is. I should say, by the way, this includes plot spoilers. <laughs> so if you want to read this book, then uh, just shut your ears or something. Um, apologies in advance. It's great. Uh, so he's, he's, got, he's under this spell, and, and he doesn't believe that the, the overworld exists. And these two in, uh, brave explorers, uh, adventurers, Eustace and Jill, and their friend Puddleglum, who's a, a Narnian marsh wiggle, uh, they go and uh, look for Prince William, and they find him. And, uh, and they set him free, and then they find the witch. And the witch is livid. Her, 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 her project, she was planning to take over the world with this, this prince. He's, he's been set free. And she tries to enchant all of them. She, she throws some, some green uh, powder into the fire. She takes out an instrument like a, a mandolin and starts strumming it, throbbing away. And she says, tell me about this world that you've come from. They start telling her. She says, oh, sounds very playful. Sounds like a dream. Can you tell me more about it? And they, they're getting, their, their minds are getting foxed and they're thinking, what, what was the world like? And they start to fall under the influence of this spell. They start to think, was it really true? Is it really just a dream? And at this point, Puddleglum uh, steps in and uh, he does what we're talking about. He, he rehearses what he knows to be true. This is what he says to the witch. You can play the fiddle till your fingers drop off and still you won't make me forget Narnia and the whole overworld too. I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awaked. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, how could we have forgotten it? Of course we've all seen the sun. Do you have an anchor point? Do you have something that operates like the sun in your life? He's going back to what he knows to be true. Do you have something, something God's done in your life, in someone else's life, something in the Bible that you know to be true, that you can hold on to when you're in the dark and when the doubts are crowding in? Find something in the light that you can hold on to in the dark. Oh, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I've tried that, and kind of the whole problem is that that's what I'm questioning. That the thing that I'm holding on to is what I'm questioning, like what God did in my life. Maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it is all made up. And the arguments can go both ways. If you're arguing with someone, they can always argue back. Actually, the next thing that happens in the story is that the, the witch speaks and carries on. Then came the witch's voice, cooing softly like the voice of a wood pigeon in the middle of a sleepy summer afternoon. And it said, what is this sun that you all speak of? 
Can you tell me what it's like? Please, your grace, said the prince. You see that lamp? It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangs from the roof. Now, the thing we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It gives light to the whole overworld and hangs in the sky. Hangs from what, my lord? asked the witch. And while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added with another of her soft silver laughs, You see? When you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream. And there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing, but the sun is a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill, in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, There is no sun, and they all said nothing. For every argument, there's another argument. And the problem with being underground is that it's hard to see the real world. And the doubts can take over. They can creep in. And the doubts can become more real than the reality. In the story, it all works out well because uh, Puddleglum defeats the witch by stamping on the fire and then she turns into a serpent and they kill her with a sword. So that's all great. Um, Sadly, life isn't that simple, is it? We can't just stamp on the fire. We, we, we can't do that. But it, it does make the point that doubt is spiritual, it's not just intellectual. So actually, no matter how much you rehearse what you know to be true, there's another dimension going on. There's an enemy that's throwing powder in the fire. And that's the enemy that we need to, to, to deal with. So it's a spiritual problem and it needs a spiritual solution. And that's what brings us on to our, our third point, number three. Take your questions to God. Verse 23 to 26 just sums this up. I love the fact that this psalm is in the Bible. I love that it's here. I love the fact that the psalmist is so open and honest with God. He just takes his questions and throws them straight at God. He doesn't hold anything back. And I love the fact that it was God who inspired this psalm. It was God who led the psalmist and gave him the words. It was God who made sure this psalm was included in the Bible. I don't know about you, but if I was God, uh, which I'm very thankful I'm not, I'm not sure I would have let this one get in, make the final cut. It doesn't present him in a great light, does it? There's no answers. There's no resolution. There's no, there's no uh, isn't God great at the end? Thankfully, God's bigger than that. He inspired Psalms like this because he wants us to come to him honestly. Because he wants us to come to him with all our questions. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was um, chatting to a friend from work, and we were talking about uh, choosing a school for our children. He's about to send his child to school. They were choosing a primary school, and all the, the factors that are involved, he was saying, it's hard because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, so much can change in the next 10 years. The head can change. Everything can, can be different. And he said, it kind of reminds me of how I felt when I was deciding about getting married. He said, um, I was really stressed about that. I said, why? He said, well, it's because there's so much unknown. You're choosing whether to spend the rest of your life with this person, but there's so much you don't know about the person. And he's right. Um, It's true of the start of any romantic relationship you can think of, any relationship, um, but particularly romantic ones. You feel drawn to a person, but there's something that holds you back. Because there are unknowns, there are things you don't know, you have questions. Rightly. It's very normal to have questions. But there's two things you can do in that situation. You can either keep holding back and you can retreat from that person, 
Or you can press on, you can keep getting to know them, and hope that your doubts are going to be resolved. I was talking to him, and we talked about how there are very uh, few things, actually, in life that you can know with absolute certainty. Very few things. Just things like 2 plus 2 is 4, and uh, truisms like the whole is greater than the parts. Things that aren't very useful or interesting, really. Everything that's useful or interesting, you can't know with certainty. Relationships, love, all that sort of stuff. And I said to him, I think this applies to God, too, actually. I said, we can make the mistake of requiring from a relationship with God what we don't of anyone else. Requiring that you know for definite that God's there before you move towards him. Needing proof. And life doesn't work like that. Relationships don't work like that. He said, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right. Becoming a Christian is a bit like starting a relationship. You don't have to have all your questions answered first. What happens is you're attracted to a God who has said that he loves you and has given himself for you, and you respond to him. And it's not wrong to have questions. Questions are natural. What matters is what you do with them. Do you retreat, or do you take them to God? Maybe you're at that stage this afternoon. You're kind of intrigued. You're feeling drawn to God. You're feeling drawn to this God who's, who's told you that he's loved you, who's given himself for you. But you've got questions. I'd say... Don't hold back. Press in. Keep getting to know him. Respond to him. And those doubts will be resolved in time. So having questions is normal at the start of a relationship. But having questions is normal as you go through a relationship as well, like we've already seen. We have expectations of people, and those expectations often aren't met. The question is, what do we do with our questions? We all have questions of God. Do we retreat from him and allow the gap to grow? Or do we take our questions to him? Do we pray them out? Do we talk to him? Do we ask for his help? If it's a spiritual problem, look for a spiritual solution. Read the Bible. Read it as hard as you can. If you've got questions, seek after them. Pursue him. Listen to him. Don't stop till you've got the answers. Read the whole thing. If God is real, and if he is good, he can stand up to questions. So three things. Prioritize community. Rehearse what you need to be true. Take your questions to God. You could do all those three and still be in the storm. You could do all those three and still feel yourself knocked around by the waves of questions and doubt. That was where the psalmist was. The psalm finished, he'd done all those three. He was still in the storm. And I think the question in this psalm, in particular, the question of God's silence in suffering, is probably one of the hardest. Maybe that's the question that you're struggling with today. Where is God when it hurts? Why doesn't he do something? And when you're in that place, where do you turn? I'd like to suggest there is a place you can turn. There is, a, there is a place you can drop your anchor in, in the storms of, of doubt. And it won't stop the waves coming, but it can keep you afloat. And that place is the cross. It's the cross where Jesus died. It's a concrete, tangible demonstration in blood and guts of God's commitment to this world of mess and to you. It's a place you can keep coming back to. No matter what I'm going through, 
no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what hardship I'm suffering, no matter how hard it is to explain, I know God is for me. That he would give his own son to die the most cruel death imaginable at the hands of the people who he had created. And that he would do that for me. That he would do that to draw me to himself. He would do that to bring me back into a relationship with him. Whatever I'm going through, I can go to the cross and I can know God is for me. In the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to a church in a similar situation to the church, um, to, to, the, to the psalmist. And I want to just read a portion of that letter just to finish. Um, it's a letter to the church in Rome who were experiencing uh, attack. They'd had people from their number sent away and they hadn't done anything to deserve it. They'd done nothing wrong. And Paul captures this point about uh, going back to the cross of Jesus perfectly. He wants to assure them that God loves them despite their suffering. And he quotes this psalm, Psalm 44, to make his point. So I'm just going to read uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to, to 38. Paul says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, you might be being killed all the day long. You might feel completely abandoned by God. You might pray and wonder where is he and feel like your words are bouncing off the ceiling. But, Paul says, God is for you. He's, he's demonstrated it by giving up his own son. Trust him. He loves you. He's given you his son. He'll hold nothing back from you. And nothing will be able to separate you from his love. And this is the bedrock that we can come back to. This is the bedrock that we can cast our anchor down to. Look at the cross. You may not be able to explain everything. You may not be able to explain why people suffer, even prove whether God exists. You may not be able to understand everything he does. I'm not sure we ever will. But you can know that he loves you and he wants you to be in no doubt about that. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you for the ultimate demonstration of your love at the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gift of his life. I pray for each and every person, um, each and every one of us who has questions, for any who are really struggling with those questions this afternoon, that you would uh, draw alongside 
that we would take our questions to you and that you would uh, give us just a real assurance and uh, a confidence in the truth of your love for us. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.